reading today is taken from Psalm 95. On these Bibles, it's page 423. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day as Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had never seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose heart go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." Bit different, hey, to read it together. I think it's nice to read God's word together, though. And uh, yeah, it's something that's gone out of custom in churches, which I think is a bit of a shame, but that's all right. Times change. I wonder what your view of God is and what your relationship with God, like how you picture it in your mind. I forgot my clicker, so I'll just grab the clicker. There we go. So there's no, actually, there's no slide show today. No slides. I wonder how um, you relate to God in your mind. Do you see him as like a loving grandfather who's kind of always up for a cuddle and always kind and kind of always just spoils you all the time, Uh, like a great-grandfather or two, never harsh with you? Or I wonder, do you picture God as like a cranky school principal? Um, He's actually fairly absent except when you've done the wrong thing and then he sort of pops up and you get in trouble and you get yelled at and that kind of thing, and then he sort of disappears again. Is that the picture of God uh, for you, like this angry principle type? Or is God somewhere in between, or is he a better picture of both of those those people? Um, How how do we rightly relate to God? How do we view him? Are we supposed to view him as all-loving or all-just or a mix of the two? I think we ought to have a healthy balance. And I think as we've come to the end of what I think has been a great year in our church, I think it's been really good. I think our first church week in a way was fantastic. Uh, It was really good. We did our first carols on the court. I think we've had a really great year um, this year in church. And I'm really thankful for it. And I'm hopeful uh, for next year as well that we're going to have another great year. And I think this psalm is just a great way to start off the year to sort of, I suppose, reset us in our thinking, reaffirm us in our thinking about how to rightly relate to God. And it's not surprising that this is a psalm uh, that Anglican churches recited together uh, for many years because it it's very, um, it's, it's aligning, I think. It um, brings us back to our foundation. 
So if you want to keep your psalm open and in your laps and you can look along, it's not going to be on the screen. Uh, you'll need your Bible that you just read from to follow along. So the first half of the psalm, the first seven verses there, there's three calls to come. If you want to have a look there, see that in verse 1, come, verse 2, let us come, verse 6, come, let us bow down. There's three calls to come. So it made me think of the Christmas carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful, which is, you know, come, let us adore him. It's a call to come to God and to praise him. So we're actually going to sing um, O Come, All Ye Faithful in a little while to remind us of that. Um, I reckon it was the psalmist's intention for this psalm to be read together. And I think um, if you look at the words, even read with great gusto, with um, great enthusiasm, he says, let us sing for joy, let us shout aloud, let's come together with thanksgiving, extol him with music. There's this enthusiasm, there's this excitement about praising God, the rock of our salvation, their deliverer, their redeemer, their saviour. Um, it's clear from the language in verse 1, there's this, there's this boldness and there's this confidence with which God's people are being called to come into God's presence. Let us come before him with thank, thanksgiving, verse 2, and extol him with music and song. Now, it's interesting, this psalm's written in the Old Testament. And coming close to God is something you can't do in the Old Testament. Um, you can't get particularly close. Mount Sinai was about as close as they got. Uh, the tent of meeting or the temple were examples where you could come into the outer court and then the priest could go into the sort of inner court and the high, great high priest would go in behind the curtain and only once a year to make atonement for the sins. So that was as close as he got to God and that was only to kind of be with the Ark of the Covenant, which the, the tablets were inside. And that, that was as close as you got. Um, so it's interesting that this psalm is, is this great call to come close to God, despite the fact that in those days you couldn't get close to God. It wasn't until Jesus came into the world that people got really close to God. They, they rubbed shoulders with him. They ate with him. A woman reached out and touched his cloak and found herself healed. That was, when, that was the first time people really got close to God. And ever since Christ, those whose faith is in him have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, in them. So we're close to God. But here it is in the psalm, people imploring one another to come to God, to come close to him. And we see the reason for their joy and their singing and their desire to come before the Lord in the next couple of stanzas uh, in the psalm. Verse 3, the Lord, Yahweh, is the great God, the great King above all gods. He is the one true God, the one and only God. It's a heavily polytheistic world in which this psalm is written. Poly, many, theos, gods. There's many gods. It's a polytheistic world that the psalmist writes into, probably David. And we live in a heavily polytheistic city. Lots of different people worshipping different so-called gods. But ours is the one true God. And this psalm sharpens the focus of Israel's praise upon the one true God, whose name is Yahweh. And Yahweh is powerful. Look at verse 4. 
In his hand are the depths of the earth, the Pacific and Atlantic trenches, the tectonic plates, the depths of the earth fit in his hand. Such is his power. The mountain peaks belong to him, the lame snowy mountains, but also the Andes and the Himalayas. He owns them. They're his. They belong to him. I don't know if you've got some gifts at Christmas time. You've got some new possessions, perhaps, at Christmas time. I've got some gifts. Christmas time, I've got this shirt. Christmas time, I hope you like it. Um, it's green. It's green. It's, it's Hills green. I've got another green shirt. Yeah. Uh, I own this shirt. Uh, it's mine. It somewhat fits in my hand. God owns everything. And it fits in his hand. Verse 5, the sea is his. Why? Because he made it. The dry land is his. Why? Because he formed it. I mean, I own some stuff, but I didn't make it. Uh, someone else made this shirt for me. Lara and I own a house, and we own a couple of cars and a camper trailer, which we'll dust off at the end of the week and go on holidays, which will be great. God owns everything. The dry land, the oceans, the seas, the mountains... All things are his because he formed them. He is our, our powerful God and our creative God. I love just how much detail there is in creation. And the only reason it's there is because God loves to make things beautiful. These little creatures that scurry about, we don't even know they exist, and they find their way and they find their food and they, they make their offspring and they do their thing, and we don't even know they're there. God knows they're there because he put them there. He creatively made them just the way they are. This is our beautiful, creative God, who we call Father. In this beautiful, poetic language of Psalm 95, we see all things belong to God. And so where does that leave those who are, we're told, jumping and singing and boldly approaching the throne of this great king? Well, verse 6, it says, it leaves them face down on the ground in worship. And rightly so. For not only did God create all things, verse 6 says he created his people. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He made us too. So we too are his possession. We rightly belong to our maker. He is Israel's God. They are his people they are like helpless sheep in the care of a true shepherd. There's lots and lots of incidences or um, uh, allusions to God being the great shepherd in the Old Testament. You're probably familiar to the ones in the New. Maybe you're familiar to some of the ones in the Old. That's in Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Ezekiel 34 says this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I'll bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I'll bring them into their own land. I'll pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I'll tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They'll lie down in a good grazing land and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. God is a loving shepherd who brings in his people 
and he gives them rich pasture. He gives them goodness. Now, this same shepherd language is, of course, applied in the New Testament to Jesus. John's Gospel, most clearly, chapter what? Anyone there? What chapter in John? We'll talk about Jesus, the good shepherd. Have a guess. Anyone there? Three? A bit later? A bit earlier? Ten. Ten. That's right, John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. God the Father, God the Son, working together always. God the Father, known as the shepherd. Here's a little exercise for you to do over the holidays. Have a look at all the shepherding language there is about God in the Old Testament. Most of us will be familiar to Jesus as the good shepherd in the New Testament. That's common. But there's lots of language about God in the Old Testament as the good shepherd as well. God is and has always been the loving shepherd of his people who cares for them, leads them to good pasture, protects them from wolves. So this moves God's people and motivates God's people in the psalm and and us to want to talk about God with other people, with one another, speak about him, praise him in conversation, even shout with joy how good our God is and sing in the presence of the Lord, which we do every Sunday and no doubt many of you do at home as well, sing God's praises. And this psalm encourages us to do that. Not just today, but always, throughout the year, every day, to sing with joy of our wonderful Lord. So that's the first half of the psalm. And then we get this really interesting contrast in the second half of the psalm. So how do we relate to God? Well, in the first half of the psalm, we come close to our loving God with praise and joy, knowing that he's our good shepherd who protects us and loves us and provides for us somewhat like a loving grandfather might, but obviously with infinite blessing. But then we have this transition uh, in the middle of the psalm into this stern, heavy tone, which is interesting. So verse 7, halfway through, kind of that last line in verse 7, it says, Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, even though they'd seen what I did. They'd seen all the good things that God had done, but still they grumbled and they questioned God's goodness. Happens many times in the Old Testament, sadly. Happens many times in our hearts throughout our lives because of our sinfulness. Now this is referring back to Moses and the Israelites, who's, who perished in the desert, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and many of them perished because they hardened their hearts against God. They rebelled, they didn't listen, they complained. Meribah means grumbling, Massa means testing. They grumbled, they tested God's patience, they didn't believe in his goodness, they doubted his goodness, and God was angry with them. And they wandered in the desert, and 600,000 of them perished in their wanderings in the desert. God sealed their fate, 
verse 11, they were supposed to make a short journey to the promised land, but instead, because of their grumbling, they wandered around and got lost in the wilderness for 40 years and died. God sealed their fate and said, they shall never enter my rest. They shall never enter my promised land. Poor old Moses never made it to the promised land. Despite his faithfulness, Joshua ended up leading the people in later on. They never entered the promised land as a result of their unbelief, their failure to trust in God's goodness. So this psalm is a warning. It's warning their descendants not to make the same mistake. But that happened in Exodus hundreds of years earlier, and we're reading about it in Psalms hundreds of years later, and it says today. So today not only means the time of the wandering in the desert, which is recorded for us in Exodus, but it also means this time when the psalm was written hundreds of years later. So it's not just a warning back then, but also for this time when the psalm was written, God's people are again warned against unbelief, against grumbling against God and testing God. It's a warning to trust and obey. If you want to flick forward to Hebrews chapter 3 in your Bibles, you'll see this psalm quoted again. I didn't mark the page. Here we are, Hebrews 3. After all Paul's letters, there it is. So Hebrews chapter 3, you'll see in verse 7, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So this word is, a, is reapplied again in the first century. You can see where this is going, can't you? That word in verse 7, applied in Exodus, then in Psalms, now in the first century, is timeless. It still applies to us today. It's not confined to any age. This today is talking about today, whatever day it is. Through God's Holy Spirit, we too hear this warning not to harden our hearts against God, but to believe, to praise with joy, and to be warned not to harden our hearts, because God is a just judge as well. And this rest that it's talking about in the Psalms, we learn from Hebrews 4 that it is for us, applied in God's eternal rest in heaven to come. Verse, chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example 
of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you've been in church a long time, you've probably heard those two verses read before a Bible reading a hundred times. But maybe you haven't heard the verses just before read, just before the Bible reading, to talk about the rest to come and the warning against unbelief. Interesting. So what's, what's our protection against unbelief then? Well, it's given to us God's word. Why did Anglican churches for decades and decades read God's word together in church? It's their shield against unbelief. It's their protection against unbelief. Our protection against unbelief is God's word. Is to continue reading God's word and to continue being reminded in our sinful hearts about how good our God is so that we will jump for joy so that we will bow down and worship before him. I read this in a commentary I was reading and I liked it. God requires nothing less than a bending of our wills and a renewal of our pilgrimage to him. If you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, great book, talks about the celestial city that Christian is on his way to. He makes this long pilgrimage as we too make this long pilgrimage through life towards the celestial city that we long to be in with our Lord forevermore. My question then for you to think about and chat about in a moment is how do we do that? What's it look like to bend our wills and to to make a pilgrimage through life in 2024 towards the celestial city? What's that going to look like in the busyness of our day-to-day lives as we work and as we care for children and as we do all the things that we do, family, life, friends? What's it look like to bend our wills? What's it look like to guard against unbelief? While you ponder that, I'll talk a little bit longer, not much longer. It wasn't weakness in the desert that caused them to be destroyed. It was unbelief. It's not weakness that causes a churchgoer of 40 years to give it all away, which happens sadly sometimes. It's unbelief. Obviously, it's not sinfulness. Because we're all sinful. Because Jesus died to conquer sin, to defeat sin. So it's not sinfulness. It's unbelief. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we learn who we are. We're sinners. Who Jesus is. The great creator, sustainer, life giver of the universe. God, truly, himself. Through listening to God's word and then believing it, we're driven to praise and to bow down in worship. We're compelled to cast ourselves at his feet in humility, in submission, in repentance. Through Jesus, anyone who believes is freely forgiven from all their sins, past, present and future. And Jesus becomes their saviour and their Lord and their shepherd and their great high priest in whom their sins are forgiven. 
God calls us to submit our will and to continue our pilgrimage. My question is, how do we do that? What's that look like? How are we going to do that in 2024? Chat to the person next to you, a couple of people next to you for a couple of minutes, and then I'll open it up for discussion. How will we do that this coming year? Bend our wills and continue our pilgrimage.